Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope Community Church. My name is Mac Harris. I work in the youth group here at Hope. Um, kind of like Jen said, like Eric said, summer is often a lot more restless than restful. And uh, it's just really good to be with you here today to get to worship and read God's word together. Um, this summer, we've been going through a series on the Ten Commandments, looking at how God's moral law isn't something restrictive that he places upon us but something that is actually given for our flourishing and given to help us live fulfilled and free lives. God shows us how to love him and love our neighbor through these laws, and that is what we're gonna look at this morning. But before we get in too far, would you pray with and for me? Father God, we thank you that we can come before you as your sons and daughters. We ask that your word this morning would prick us, that you would convict us, that you would show us our own sin, but at the same time that you would show us the goodness and the grace and the gospel that shines forth even in places where we don't expect it. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, despite my mom's best efforts, growing up in a house with three brothers, the dinner table was often more a war zone than a place of peace. Verbal jabs, the loose piece of spaghetti, a fist might get thrown across the table at any moment. There was a long list of running grievances that we had with each other over the dinner table, specifically about food and the way each of us ate. I was the picky eater. I refused to eat the unimportant things like fruits and vegetables and anything healthy. Sam, my middle brother, was the the exact opposite. He would eat anything and everything, especially if it grossed out me or my little brother. And Ben was just the slowest eater. He was the slowest eater on the face of the earth. He might say that he was patient or that he just enjoyed his food more than the rest of us. And whether he talked too much or chewed for too long, it didn't really matter because every single night we were all waiting for him to finish his dinner. No one was allowed to leave until Ben was done. Eventually my dad got so sick of this, he would start putting Ben on the clock, which meant that he would go to the oven and set a timer and for five minutes, for 10 minutes, and Ben would have to sit there and finish his food before the timer ran out, or else he'd face some sort of consequence, like no dinner or an early bedtime or extra chores or something like that. And Ben wasn't just the slowest eater, but he was also the sneakiest. And one fateful night, the clock was on, time was ticking down for B-Dog, and he was left at the kitchen table by himself because everyone else was so sick of waiting on him. My mom and dad went to put me and Sam to bed to get us ready to brush our teeth and left Ben downstairs with nothing but a half-eaten casserole between him and those double-stuffed Oreos waiting for him. A couple minutes later, Ben shouted that he was all done and my mom, in surprise, ran downstairs and saw that his plate was, in fact, clean. She was so grateful that she freed him to go and eat his Oreos, which, of course, he devoured immediately, and then he ran upstairs to get ready for bed. After my mom and dad had put us all to bed, my mom came back downstairs to clean up and she grabbed Ben's plate off the kitchen table to do the dishes and realized that it was a little bit stuck to the table. She slowly peeled the plate up and saw the stringy remains of what was once a delicious casserole smushed between the plate and the kitchen table. And that was the day we started using placemats forever. (laughs) Right, on the surface, she saw a clean plate, a full stomach and obedient sun, but as soon as she peeked beneath the plate, she saw the sloppy remains of a devious son too smart for his own good. And 
All kidding aside, really a lot of us, I think, are working really hard to fool ourselves and to fool other people and to think that our plates, if you will, are clean. Maybe they're not spotless, obviously, everybody's got a few crumbs, nobody's perfect, but for the most part, we look pretty good. We're South Charlotte people, we come to church, our lives look pretty put together. If you're like me, you might be afraid that someone might look underneath and see the mess we're hiding, but maybe you're not too worried about that either. I think more than any other law in the Bible, the sixth commandment, addressing murder, can leave us thinking, well, hey, this one doesn't apply to me. The others might, I might need to listen to, but this one I don't have to worry about too much. But today I wanna challenge us to take a closer look. You've probably heard that God actually cares about your heart posture and what's going on in there more than your outward actions, but we're gonna put that to the test this morning. Our scripture reading this morning is a short one, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. is a good one for scripture memory, if that's what you're into. But the word of the Lord reads this, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. It's one of the few things I think most people in the world can probably agree on. Murder is bad. But if that's so obvious, what is God really telling us here? And why is it so important for all of us who feel like, well, I've never actually killed anybody, so maybe I don't have to worry about this one. Three things to guide us this morning. First, the seed of murder. Second, the severity of murder. And third, the solution for murderers. First, the seed of murder. Reading through the Ten Commandments, we don't get a whole lot of details here. Verse 13 is just two words in the Hebrew, four words in English. You shall not murder. In the Hebrew, there are a lot of different words God could have used, but he specifically used a word that is never used in the context of war, never used in the context of capital punishment, but is only used in the context of killing, of murdering innocent people. Interestingly, this is a word that can be the intentional killing of an innocent person or the unintentional killing of an innocent person. So this law has a a positive and a negative side. Negatively, we're not supposed to murder anybody, but positively, we're supposed to be people who avoid negligence, people who protect life, who support and keep life for all other people. Martin Luther summarizes it like this. He says that the commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. Or though he has the opportunity, he fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see, another, if you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. If you do It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. In other words, withholding love, failing to do good to your neighbor, to your brother, your sister, making someone feel dismissed instead of valued are all violations of this sixth commandment. So even if you've never physically murdered somebody, We've all failed to love our neighbor perfectly. Even this morning, all of us have done something that has made someone feel dismissed or devalued. But this law goes even even deeper than that, and Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He begins that sermon by 
saying that he hasn't come to abandon the law but to, or to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he turns immediately to the Ten Commandments and he starts breaking some of them down and he begins with this one right here. In Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So rather than tossing the Ten Commandments out the window, Jesus actually expands and expounds on the moral law. He says, actually, this is what it's been about all along. Like the Pharisees, we care so much about what's on the outside, about our behavior, about the behavior of our kids, but God is so much more concerned with the heart. We want to scrape that plate clean, but God wants to peek underneath and see what's, what we're hiding. According to Jesus, the seed of murder is anger. The road to um, becoming a murderer doesn't begin by deciding you want to murder somebody, but by being angry with that person. And anger, I want to be clear, and I think the Bible is clear, isn't a sin by itself. Anger is an emotion that we feel when something we love is threatened. God himself describes himself as abounding in mercy and slow to anger. Jesus gets angry when he sees death, when he sees his friend Lazarus has died. He gets angry when he sees people taking advantage of others in the temple. In Proverbs, Solomon writes that whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. In Ephesians, Paul tells us to be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there's clearly a a biblical category for a righteous and a godly anger, an anger that is slow and not reactive. But whenever we are angry, the danger is that we always think our anger is justified and righteous. There are so many ways that we can explain it away and defend ourselves and think that we are on the right side. Right, I'm just, I'm just really competitive. I get caught up in the heat of the moment. I'm really passionate about this issue and sometimes I care too much. I just care so much about justice. Right, maybe I need to stick up for myself or for my family. I need to get that off my chest. Maybe it's the, a newer one. Like I need to cut you out of my life because I need a healthy boundary for my mental health. I wanna be clear that none of these in and of themselves are inherently wrong. It can be healthy to have good boundaries with people. It is healthy to have good boundaries with people. We can get passionate about something we care about, like justice or to vent after we have a bad day. But when someone calls you out in your anger, the first response for all of us is to defend and to deny it. Right? The worst thing you can do to someone who is angry is tell them that they are angry and they need to calm down because anger has its way of justifying itself, defending itself, and this is where we get into real trouble. Because when we sit in our anger, when we indulge it, when we cook it low and slow in the smoker of our heart, that is when our anger descends into something far nastier. Jen Wilkin describes this journey like this. She says, first, I am angry with you in response to a hurt. Next, I begin to question your character with an insult, and then I begin to question your worth as a person. As anger degrades into contempt, the personhood of another is devalued. People who indulge anger have made a conscious decision of the will 
to nurture a negative emotion into a viable seedling of contempt, a seedling which, over time, yields a bloody harvest. When we abide in our anger, we can't help but slide into hatred and to contempt for another person. And that is a seed which when we water it with our thoughts, when we water it by spending time dwelling on it, that grows into a, bl- a bloody and a violent harvest. Jesus cares about our words and our thoughts because they are never just words and thoughts on their own. They always become more. As one theologian notes, he says, actual physical injury is not the only way to break this commandment. Hatred, scorn, or malice has already broken it. We are all murderers in the sense that we have failed to love as we ought. So the seed of murder is anger, is hatred stored up in the heart, contempt towards another person. And unfortunately for me and for all of us here today, that means that we can no longer say about the sixth commandment, well, at least that doesn't apply to me. That brings us to our second point today, the severity of murder. Why does God care so much about my thoughts, about my words? Part of the problem, I think, is that as a, as a society, we are so saturated with anger all the time. We think that's just the normal baseline. Politicians want to divide everything into an us versus them. News outlets are trying to rile you up and get you upset about everything that goes on. Social media is the perfect realm for us to, divi- to be divided and to yell at each other and to hide behind uh, a screen. Right? The anger and the vitriol online is everywhere. And if we journey back a couple years to the, the, the dark days of COVID, which we've all tried to forget about, I think most of us got really good at living with this kind of low-level state of contempt towards other people. I like to think that I'm not a very angry person, but there are friendships that still haven't recovered because of the words that I said to other people and the way that I thought about them in my head and my heart. Whether it was masks or vaccines, schools, COVID overall, the racial injustice that was going on, the election of 2020, everything was so polarized that I constantly found myself hating and judging and looking down at anyone who disagreed with me. I didn't just think that they were wrong, but I thought they were stupid. They were idiots. Their opinions weren't worth my time. And ironically, it wasn't until another one of the Hope pastors was confessing this about himself in a sermon that I realized that I was exactly in the same boat. I may not be all that expressively or explosively angry, but man, I am capable of some nasty things in my heart. That's why the Sermon on the Mount hits so hard. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This word here for insult is the ancient equivalent of a four-letter word that means worthless, means idiot. It's one of those wash your mouth out with soap words that is so offensive because it means that the person in front of you is no longer a human being. You see them as something less than that. The word here for fool is the word moros in the Greek, which is where we get the word moron. These are words that we think all the time about other people, and it doesn't take much for any of the kids who went on the Greece mission trip a few weeks ago to tell you exactly the moment when I was most mad on our mission trip. 
I was mad at them. I was mad at the other leaders. I was mad at myself. I thought I was hiding it pretty well. I wasn't saying anything to them, which was probably part of the problem. But I was going off on them in my head. And they could tell. They kept asking me, Mac, why are you so mad? You know, oh, Mac's so mad right now and laughing at me, which is, you know, the last thing that I wanted for them to be doing. But even hours after this fact, after I'd kind of recovered a little bit, I was still holding on to this. I was still feeling like they owed me something because of the way they had been acting. And I was holding on to these idiots, oh, these high schoolers, they're being so stupid right now, so spoiled. And I loved that I could blame them and that I could hate them and that I could be so mad at them even as I tell the story since I've gotten back, and I don't have to address the anger that was in my heart. I don't have to address the ways that I was thinking about my brothers and sisters. Most of us probably don't have to fly halfway across the world to remember the last time we were filled with these kind of thoughts or words. Maybe just driving here this morning, the person in front of you was going way too slow. Maybe at your kid's soccer game the other night, one, one other kid made a mistake cost your team the game, and you blurted something out you shouldn't have. Last night, maybe you got into it with your parents, and they just never seemed to understand your side of the story. I think a lot of times that pastors and theologians can be accused of not really living in reality, but just living in the books and not understanding what real life is like. There's a theologian, though, named Miroslav Volf, who survived genocide in a horrific civil war in Yugoslavia, and in the midst of all this violence, he wrote a lot about these problems of anger and violence and how our angry words and angry thoughts reduce our opponents to something less than human. He says this, he says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. He's saying, when we stew in our anger, we not only place all the blame on the other person and see ourselves as entirely blameless, but we see that person, that group, that other, as less than human. And this is why God takes this so seriously. Every malicious thought, word, insult that comes out of our heart attacks the fundamental humanity of that other person. And this is something that God has always cared so deeply about. The dignity and the worth of every human being is attached to the very image of God in that person. In creation in Genesis 1, when God was creating the heavens and the earth and the animals, he took time to specially make man and woman. He says this in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Not only was man made specially in God's image from the beginning, but even after the fall, even after God destroyed the earth with a flood because of the violence, because of all the killing that was going on, God made a promise to Noah in Genesis 9. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own 
image. God is clear that the image of God, that his image in every single person is scarred by the fall, but is still intact. Every man and woman and child in here is beautiful and dignified and valuable because we all carry the image of the triune God. God treasures human life. It is precious to him. To be pro-life has undeniable political connotations. But for Christians, it must mean so much more than just being against abortion. It means that we have to stand with and support women and their young children. It means we help the poor and the immigrant and the homeless. It means that we care for the mentally handicapped and the elderly and the dying and anyone else that society doesn't care for because all of those people are sons and daughters made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis has an incredible sermon titled The Weight of Glory, and the whole thing is worth reading, but towards the end he talks about this dignity and this value in every single human being. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Parents, think just for a moment how you would feel if you overheard another parent or another kid insulting your son or daughter. Imagine how you would feel if you got home and you realized that someone had broken into your house and taken a sharpie and crossed out the faces of every one of your kids and all your family pictures. You wouldn't, you couldn't just brush that off as nothing. That's not just an attack on your kids, but as your image bearers, that's an attack on you. That's exactly how God feels. Any insult against a human being, handmade in his perfect image, is an insult against God himself. John Calvin, another reformer, summarizes it like this. He says, our neighbor bears the image of God To use him, abuse him, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. So murder and anger is serious business because it does violence not just to that person in front of you and to their humanity, but to God. And you may be sitting here wondering, okay, when is the youth in turn gonna stop beating me over the head with the bad news, right? Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is effectively saying, you who've ever held on to your anger, you who've called a stranger an idiot, called your friend a fool, you have committed murder. And even if the earthly consequences of physical murder are different from the consequences of hating someone in my heart, eternally, Jesus is clear that the consequences are the same. So where's the hope? Where's the good news for those of us who are quick to lash out with a snarky comeback or who secretly wish for other people to fail, or who silently groan when that person who always annoys you walks your way. The Sunday school answer, of course, is Jesus, but how does Jesus actually deal with our murderous hearts? Maybe even more importantly, how does he heal our murderous hearts? First, he invites us to repent. And repentance is maybe a a churchy word that you may not really have an idea what it means. It just gets thrown out a whole lot. And also may not sound like much of an invitation. It doesn't sound like something we want to do. 
because it requires us to admit that we are wrong. But really, repentance is Jesus inviting us into a restored relationship. And Counselor Larry Crabb describes it like this. He says, repentance requires far more than a recognition that we are sinful and sometimes sin. It requires an awareness of sin in its ugliest form, one that leads us in self-disgust to radically shift our direction from self-protection to love. The repentance requires admitting the nastiness, not just of what I have done, but of my sin and who I am beneath that clean-looking plate. It's a vulnerable and exposing and painful experience of lifting up the plate in front of someone else and showing them, this is what my heart is really like. Of inviting Jesus into that and saying, Jesus, these are the thoughts that I actually am thinking. Jesus is so serious about this that right after in the Sermon on the Mount, he, described, he tells us how dangerous our anger is. The very next verse, in verse 23, is about repentance. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. Repentance is so important that Jesus says, even if you're at the temple, even if you're at church and you remember that you've wronged someone, leave and go and right that wrong with that person before coming back. That's serious business. But he says, return to me. Return to that person and confess the hatred. Confess what is going on in your heart. But secondly, this is where we get to the the good news part, the only reason that we can repent in the first place is because in Jesus we have already been forgiven. We know that when we repent, the answer will not be to push us aside, but to open his arms and give us a hug. Jesus knows what it's like to be wronged and reviled and betrayed and abandoned. And if you're reflecting on your own heart this morning and looking at some of your own anger or or thoughts that are going on and you're realizing that a lot of that is tied to pain and injustice that's been done to you, then just know that Jesus is right there with you. When he came to earth, when God came to earth to walk among his people, we killed him. We hated him, we insulted him, just as we hate and insult each other. And the only innocent man to ever live, we murdered. It was my sin, my murderous heart, that held him there on that cross. But even as Jesus died on that cross, he died for murderers, he died for the very people who were hanging him there on that day. In Luke 23, as he was hanging on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And if Jesus is able to say that, to forgive them, the very people who put the nails into his hands, then there is no thought that is too twisted, no insult that is too offensive that we can, that we can think, or that we can do, or we can say that Jesus did not die for. He knows exactly the depths of what we are capable of, and yet he still moves towards us in love. He wants, to, he wants to be invited into the process of peeling up that plate and seeing what's inside. He knows what could be underneath, and he's not afraid. But not only did Jesus' death on the cross give us forgiveness of our sins, but Jesus also offers his obedience. And God, theologians call this the great exchange where we are given Jesus' righteousness and his obedience, and he is given our sin and our brokenness. 
Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians and he says, for our sake, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If I can risk a, a school analogy during the summertime, this is like knowing you have failed miserably on a test and groaning about that the rest of the day and showing up to school the next day full of despair just to see that Jesus has switched names with you, that his name is right next to that F and that your name is right next to that 100. Even when we still sin, we are called to repent and turn back to Jesus, but we can do that because we know that we are secure and forgiven and loved by him. That God looks at us as obedient and beloved sons and daughters and not as rebellious murderers. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you needed to hear more of the conviction, the the bad news that we are all guilty of murdering in our hearts, or the good news that there's forgiveness that is offered by Jesus. Even with the Holy Spirit living inside us, our murderous thoughts don't just suddenly disappear, so we shouldn't be surprised when we continue to struggle. But even in the law, there is gospel. Even in the thou shalt nots, there is an open invitation into life, into forgiveness, this new life that is only given to us through death. And Jen Wilkins summarizes this perfectly. She says, he himself, the object of anger and contempt, denigrated and devalued and stripped of his dignity, endured the breaking of the sixth commandment in his broken flesh and spilled blood. Christ the murdered is Messiah indeed. Because he is the image of the invisible God, those who hated God dealt violently with that image. Yet he whose life was extinguished took every care to preserve life. And in receiving back his own, he receives life that we may have life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you uh, were murdered by us and for us. Lord, we confess to you the uh, hatred and the anger in our hearts, but ask that you would show us your grace and your love and that we would feel that wash over us today. Lord, we thank you for this morning and ask this in Jesus' name, amen.